Welcome to the Black Agenda Podcast. I'm your co-host, Devin Dito, along with my co-host, Adrian Guest, and we are back at it again, this time bringing you weekly roundup number six. This is our chance to bring you all the news from the past week, so this is your chance to catch up on everything. Um, So yeah, so let's get right into it. A lot of news to get to. Um, And our first story, the biggest story is the Olympics are finally underway a year later. Uh, we, you know, a lot of people were wondering if this was even going to happen, but it is here and it's a little, you know, not as exciting, I guess, is what you could say. So the virus delayed uh, Summer Olympics, like I say, are finally open. Uh, they opened Friday night uh, yesterday. So if you didn't get to see it, the opening ceremony, even though there weren't people in the stands, was still pretty cool. Um, earlier in the ceremony, uh, they had like a blue light that kind of you know, shined on the seats as loud music, you know, was, was going throughout the stadium. Um, they had a single stage that held an octagon shape meant to resemble the country's uh, fabled Mount Fuji. And again, the host country is Japan this year. And so later on during the opening ceremony, there was an orchestral medley of songs from iconic Japanese video games, interestingly enough, that served as the soundtrack for the athletes' entrances. And so if you did see it, uh, the opening ceremony, you noticed most of the athletes were maxed, maxed as they were walking through. Uh, they were still waving enthusiastically as if there were people in the seats, but there will not be fans. So there wasn't anybody there. Um, some athletes marched, you know, socially distanced. Others kind of clustered as they made their way through the stadium for their entrance. Interestingly enough, the Czech Republic entered with other countries even though their delegation has had several COVID tests. And COVID is going to be something that's going to hang over the Olympics because there were concerns that Japan is seeing an increase in COVID cases and they were still holding uh, the Olympic Games. But while the competition began earlier this week, people can start watching it as early as Friday evening into Saturday morning. Um, It'll be 23 sports that's going to be played. The medal count will begin as well. Uh, the sports like weightlifting, taekwondo, judo, fencing, shooting, all that action is going to start on Saturday, Friday evening into Saturday. Uh, so make sure you check it out. It's going to be live on NBC. It's going to be where you can watch most of it, but also check your you know, TV guys and everything. But the 2020 Olympics are finally here, and they're off and rolling. That's great, Devin. I'm glad to see that we're able to do that, get that going again. I know uh, here in America, uh, sports and athleticism is just kind of like America's you know, favorite pastime. So yes. <laughs> uh, whenever we're able to get back to it, it's really nice. Um, we're going to take you to the Supreme Court listeners, and we're going to give you a story out of our state, Mississippi. Uh, this is about Roe v. Wade. And in case you uh, don't remember what Roe v. Wade is about, um, Roe v. Wade was a decision made by the Supreme Court in 1973 that gave women the right to abort their babies without any government restrictions. This can happen all the way up until age or rather till week 24 pregnancy. However, lawyers for the state of Mississippi on Thursday asked the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade, calling it a harmful decision that has damaged the court and the Constitution. The state filed a brief in advance of a major abortion case that justices will hear later this year. Mississippi is defending a ban on abortion after 15 weeks against a legal challenge from its sole abortion clinic. The state has mounted a frontal assault on the court's abortion precedent in Thursday's filing, arguing that no basis in the Constitution uh, for them making the decision bind the justices to be able to hear this case. Leading pro-life groups have held Mississippi's brief as a welcome development and argue that the state's ban would bring the United States in line with abortion access rules in other developed countries. Well, you know, Devin, the Republicans are always going to be trying to overturn Roe v. Wade. Uh, I don't think it's ever going to be uh, uh, an administration that's not being uh, attacked with this and not being, you know, Joe Biden is going to have to deal with this and trying to figure out what's going on. The Supreme Court's always going to hear different things like this. And, and in my opinion, Dev, I don't know how you feel about abortion, but I think it's one of those things to where abortion is, a, is an issue of morality and government shouldn't put their hands in stuff like this. It should be that, 
you know, you know, if you, if you want to say that you don't want your tax dollars to go to abortions, well, hey, let's stop government funding for it. Let's let nonprofit organizations be able to raise funds and have abortion clinics. And that way, doctors who want to do abortions and people who want to have abortions can go do it. And no one has to feel like the government has a say in it. But you should allow women to uh, have a right to choose and have access to do what they want with their bodies. But if you feel the government shouldn't be involved in it, then you just bolster the nonprofit community to allow them to take over and do it um, without interference from the government. But like I said, I don't know how you feel, but that's how I've always thought about abortion. It shouldn't be in the hands of the government. No, I mean, you're, you're seeing exactly what happens. It gets very messy, you know, when you try to make the government, you know, the arbiter for morality and things like that. Um, I, I think it needs to, it's a necessary thing. It's not going to go away. People, we could ban abortion tomorrow. Abortions are still going to happen. Uh, and so I would rather there be a safe way for people to get it rather than trying to ban it. And we have to find, you know, watch people try to go get it from all kind of crazy back alley. It's just not, no, that's not going to happen. And, you know, it's just, again, if it's the woman's body, let her choose it. Let the family the man and the woman who made that child figure out if that is the best decision for them. People do not just wake up and say, hey, we're going to get an abortion today. That is a very difficult decision that they have to live with, <laughs> you know, for the rest of their lives, especially the woman has to go through that mentally. That takes a toll. So it's not just, you know, people waking up just saying, hey, you know, I want to be reckless and make a baby and then go abort it. That's not what's happening. So. Um, it's just, I, I hate that they keep trying to fight that fight instead of giving people incentives to have children or helping them so that they can follow through and, and not have to go get an abortion, but banning it is not going to fix that problem. So, um, they can keep trying, <laughs> but our, our next story here, we'll go one state over from Mississippi. We'll go to Alabama now. Um, and so this is a story out of Tarrant, Alabama, where a council member, his name is Tommy Bryant stood up during a meeting on Monday night and said, quote, this is real, folks, said, quote, he said, do we have a house nigger in here? Yes, he said that. Tommy Bryan is 76. Uh, he is a, a white gentleman. Um, he's the longest service, serving councilman on the city council. He uttered this offensive slur after an unidentified person in the audience noted that his wife used the N-word on Facebook. And so in this little town, there's all kind of stuff going on here, Adrian. Uh, the mayor of this town, uh, his name is Wayman Newton. He is uh, he's black. He's a black man. He's had a turbulent relationship with Mr. Bryant. He's also commented on social media posts. Uh, Bryant made clear. Uh, Tommy Bryant has made clear that his wife does not speak from him for him. And then that's when he went off and said that. And so uh, the city of Tarrant has about 7,000 people in it. It's mostly comprised of black and Latino residents. And this is after it was predominantly white for many years. So this city has really, really changed. And you're seeing this resistance here um, to, you know, to black leadership, essentially, because they have a black mayor. And so uh, the, the Alabama Democratic Party has called for, for Tommy Bryan's resignation, saying in a statement Tuesday that, quote, Alabama has a long way to go when it comes to race. But cozying up to the KKK and using the N-word should make you unfit to serve. These races belong in the history books, history books with Bill Connor and George Wallace, not on the taxpayers role payroll. So, end quote. So, Adrian, not surprising that's coming from Alabama. Uh, just the gall to get up and say something like that. Uh, but it just shows you a resistance to when you get black leadership in place, you know, that a lot of people are not going to really be happy. You know, that uh, changes has, has come to the city of Tarrant and they don't like it. <laughs> And so they're making it known. You're absolutely right, Devin. Um, anytime America starts to move forward, um, a lot of people feel that we're, we're doing too much, too fast, too quickly. Uh, something's going, uh, something's wrong whenever uh, minorities are able to rise up and then do things. So it's, you know, it's, I'm not surprised um, because a lot of Republicans feel emboldened uh, from their former president. And we're in a time where people uh, feel like they can say whatever they want to uh, and they forget about community, forget about um, the fact that a lot of people have. Um, 
respected for what they're trying to do in their communities because what they're trying to do better their communities. Um, another story here, um, listeners, this is going to take you to Devon's state, Texas. Um, <laughs> Devon, Texas is, is, is always doing something. What I, do I we do now? <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know if it's something in y'all's water or the food or, or the, I know it's hot over there. Maybe the Republicans just don't like the heat and they're going crazy over here, but listeners, this is what's going on. And, and honestly, this is it's something that should be easy. Whenever someone mentions the Ku Klux Klan, um, everyone in America should immediately think that that was a morally wrong institution. However, the Texas Senate um, is trying to change that. So let's, let's give you a backstory, uh, listeners. Republican senators in Texas have continued this ongoing fight against cultural awareness in the state's public schools. They recently passed a bill that eliminates the requirement that teaches that the KKK or Ku Klux Klan uh, and its historical terror are morally wrong. So they're basically trying to, you know, eliminate that. Uh, the Senate bill, which is Senate Bill 3, passed on Friday. Uh, and what it does, it will eliminate most mentions of people of color from the state's required cur- curriculum. More than two dozen curriculum requirements have been cut by the bill, including the study of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, the reading of writings about the women's suffrage movement, Native American history, and the work of labor activist Cesar Chavez. The bill does not make the study of these issues illegal. Instead, it makes them no longer required to diversify the the subject studied in Texas schools. The autonomy will lie within the school districts. The new bill is similar to one that was passed that bars teachers from teaching an understanding of the New York Times, Nicole Hannah-Jones Helm, the 1619 Project, the previous bill has prohibited social studies teachers from teaching critical race theory, giving deference to one group more than any other, or from being compelled to discuss current events. The new bill will apply that rule to teachers of all subjects. To become law, the bill must pass the House, which is led by the Republicans. However, it cannot be voted on because the 51 Democrats who left the state earlier this month to block a restrictive voting bill have denied the House a quorum. So, Devin, it's really nice that the the Democrats are doing uh, some work in Texas here to deny quorum because the, these these bills that that, that that you know that state legislatures are continuing to pass that limits education are very damaging because you know you and I we've talked so much Devin about how education is is one of the the root causes rather the root you know, solutions to fix a lot of the different problems that we have in our society but when you've got a political party who's trying to demonize certain parts of education like you know teaching about Native American history women's suffrage MLK's I have a dream speech come on i mean trying to remove the the kkk from being a you know called a morally wrong institution i mean it's just it's appalling that we're going back this far to where people just think that anytime you teach about uh inclusivity anytime you teach about you know other minorities other than white america anytime you try to include something where white americans aren't the center of attention um it's not american it's something's wrong there's a problem because white people aren't the focus um that that says so much about our country devin it it really does you know people don't want to accept what the history is they don't want to face it and be honest and say and listen, we're not saying all white people are racist, but what we are saying is that there was a time in this country when the Ku Klux Klan was going around terrorizing black people that white people made them, they, they were racist, bigots, terrorists, basically. They were domestic terrorists. We have, and it was morally wrong. It doesn't look good when you look at it in history. And I think that's what, you know, Republican senators now are grappling with is that history doesn't look too kindly on them when you go back and you look at the things that were actually happening and what they were doing to us, it looks terrible. And so they don't want that to be told to their children. Just, you know, so it's like, we don't want to tell them the history. So we want to give them some whitewashed version, some sanitized version of what U S history is. And that's just, that's not going to do anyone in this country any good to not make it required to say that the Ku Klux Klan was morally wrong. That shouldn't even be a question. Like who who's arguing that it's it wasn't morally wrong is my question. Like what what is the other side to that 
equation. So it's just ridiculous. They don't want to square up with history because it looks bad on them. And so they're going to try everything they can to make sure no one gets the full picture of this country's you know, history. So it's just ridiculous. But we'll move on from that. Um, we'll go up from Texas. We're going to go up to Iowa. Sorry to keep on with the, you know, racially tinged stories here. But we have another one here out of Iowa. This happened on Thursday. So apparently an Iowa racetrack has had to cut ties with an announcer who went on a racist rant against black fans and athletes who kneeled during the national anthem. And so in a video that was posted on Thursday uh, on Twitter, the announcer told the crowd he wanted to make, quote, a social service announcement before the national anthem. And then he condemned those who, quote, won't stand for our flag or who take a knee during the anthem. He went on to say, he's, he said, I've got four words, four words for you. Find a different country if you won't do it. He said, that's a lot more than four words. But um, he also said, get the hell out of Dodge. The Kosuth County Speedway in Algona, Iowa, said its leaders do not condone the comments made by the announcer. And they have, like I say earlier, they've cut ties with him. And so, again, you know, th- these folks are, are making it known that they don't like certain things uh, that, that we do. And, and Adrian, you know, as much as we think we make progress in this country, there are a lot of people who feel um, that we've moved too far. You know, we have you know, we, we allowed black people in particular <laughs> to go too far with their protesting and, and kneeling for the anthem for the sake of bringing, you know, awareness to racial inequality is just a step too far. You know, so now we go back to the things we used to hear back in the day, which is find a different country. You don't belong here. Get out of here. That's still with us in 2021. Um, even though we're not, there's no destruction happening. They're just taking a knee. And letting you know that the country has a long way to go when it comes to, uh, you know, racial equality, economic equality. We still have work to do. And they're just letting you know. <laughs> they're not saying it's a bad country or we want to leave. That's not what they're saying. <laughs> you know, Devin, I, I always tell people, you know, from where public pools are located to where grocery stores are to housing to transportation, racism is embedded into the American fiber. Uh, and we're going to constantly have to fight against it uh it's almost like you know we have to legislate and put policies in place to eradicate racism but a part of that is the people who interact in society and it's hard to tell people to stop being racist you almost have to let them die which is what we talked about within our first episode of the podcast so it's it's a shame but it's trying to convince people and trying to get our politicians on board so twofold problem to deal with but fortunately, we've got people like Jeff Bezos, who's finally trying to wake up and, you know, do something about, you know, about the problems of society, you know, as the wealthiest uh, man in the world. But, you know, listeners, to give you a little bit of insight into what uh, Jeff Bezos has done on Tuesday, he announced his plans to donate a hundred million each to CNN contributor Van Jones and celebrity chef Jose Andres. The gift was part of his philanthropic initiative called the Courage and the Civility Award, which aims to honor leaders who aim high and pursue solutions with courage and who always do so with civility. Jones is the founder of the nonprofit Dreams Corp, which focuses on criminal justice reform. He intends to use his funds to give to others who have similar spirit. Andres, who started the nonprofit World Central Kitchen, said the $100 million award cannot feed the world on its own, but that it's a start of a new chapter for us. So, Devin, that's a nice little story there. Uh, Jeff Bezos has so much money, uh, listeners, <laughs> in case you <laughs> had never Googled his net worth. It's, you know, the, the wealthiest man in America, um, over $100 billion, can never spend it all in his lifetime, can't give it all away in his lifetime. But it's good to see that, you know, given these people $100 million each, I hope that this is something that we continue to see. Uh, I think, Devin, every billionaire, if you if that's your classification, you should be giving people money. Like you should just be giving money away. I, I mean, it, I mean, every 
that there's so many different causes, so many different charities, so many different reasons for you to give as a billionaire, because honestly, how can you ever spend all of that wealth? How can you ever pass it down? Because as you spend it, as you give it away, you continue to make more. Amazon, I mean, he just gave away $200 million, but I guarantee you Amazon made that plus some today, Devin. So I'm just like... <laughs> I'm glad that he's doing it, but I hope that this continues. And I hope it's a trend that maybe other billionaires, I'm going to be the Bernie Sanders here and point my fingers at all the billionaires and they need to do something. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm glad at least he's seated. He's, you know, g- giving some of the money towards some good causes. Um, he did just go to space and thanked all the Amazon employees and customers who paid for him to go to space. Um, so it was a little weird to hear him actually say that, but um so yeah, I mean, at least he's she's trying to give it back in in a good way. So, um, you know, that's nice to see from Jeff Bezos. We'll go ahead and and one more story here, um, just to let you know if you do plan on picking up NBA Two K Twenty Two, you'll notice that there are several different versions of the cover, and one of them, for the first time ever, includes a woman, and that woman is Chicago star and former Sparks standout Candace Parker. She's going to be on the cover of NBA Two K Twenty Two for the uh, WNBA 25th anniversary special edition when it's released on September the 10th. And so she joins the group of female athletes who adorn the covers of sports games. And so, yeah, so again, September 10th, you can pick up a copy of NBA 2K22 with Candace Parker on the cover. So that's going to round out our first segment of news. And so we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about COVID. We know. You're tired of it, but we have to talk about it. We're talking about COVID vaccines and a guy, Tucker Carson, back at it again. So we'll we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the Black Agenda podcast. We appreciate your support and we ask that you like, share and follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, IG, and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, let's get back into it here. Our second segment here. Wanted to give you some COVID news. Uh, the CDC says that cases have nearly tripled in the U.S. after nearly two weeks amid an onslaught of vaccine misinformation that is straining hospitals, exhausting doctors, and pushing clergy into the fray. Across the U.S., the seven-day rolling average for daily new cases rose over the past two weeks to more than 37,000 on Tuesday, up less than 13,000 on July 6, according to data for John Hopkins University. Health officials blame the Delta variant and slowing vaccination rates. Just 56.2% of Americans have gotten at least one dose of the vaccine, according to the CDC. In Louisiana, health officials reported about 5,300 new COVID cases Wednesday, the third highest daily count since the beginning of the pandemic in early 2020. Hospitalizations for the disease rose to 844 statewide, up more than 600 since mid-June. New Orleans leaders urge people to resume wearing masks indoors. So, Devin, there's a lot going on uh, with this COVID stuff. Uh, People think that COVID was all about 2020. But if we don't get vaccinated, COVID is going to be about 2021 and 2022. And it's going to keep being our our daily news uh, because people refuse to listen to medical experts and get vaccinated. Um, I'm just hopeful that eventually people are going to wake up see the deaths, see the hospitalizations, be like, hey, let me go get my free vaccine. Yeah, I mean, we're waiting, um, you know, waiting on that day. We're half the country who's gotten at least one dose, but there is still some resistance out there. And, you know, <laughs> this next story here, Alabama uh, Alabama governor, Kay Ivey, is, is frustrated. Um, she, she is, a, you know, a Republican governor, and she, early on in the pandemic, resisted a lot of the you know, uh, calls for people to get vaccinated and and in keeping the mask mandate. Um, she was one of those who was kind of early in, in getting rid of the mask mandate. And now she is now trying to convince the people in her state to get a vaccine. Um, she even went on to say, 
uh, it's time to start blaming. She said, quote, it's time to start blaming the unvaccinated folks, not the regular folks. She said that speaking to reporters and uh, like I say, she's a Republican who once kind of got into a feud with her own lieutenant governor over what he warned was a weak coronavirus response. And she told reporters also that she, quote, had done all that I know how to do, end quote. And so just to tell you how dire the situation is in Alabama, they have the fourth lowest vaccination rate in the country, according to a New York Times tracker. Just 42 percent, a little bit above 42 percent of adults in Alabama are fully vaccinated. And so, Adrian, we know coming from Mississippi, there was always this resistance um, against the vaccine. But it is kind of interesting, at least to me, that folks like Kay Ivey, who early on in the pandemic didn't necessarily take it seriously, are now trying to come back around and tell those very same people who they told in the beginning it wasn't a big deal that now all of a sudden, hey, it's a big deal. You need to go get a vaccine. And naturally, those folks are like, no, it's not a big deal. Remember, you told us this is a almost a hoax. So why do I need to go get a vaccine for something that's not that serious? <laughs> You're absolutely right, Devin. Um, it's it's it's, it's kind of like the situation of uh, you know, the boy who cried wolf or something. It's a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. Like people don't believe you at this point because it's a little too late. Um, so, okay, I mean, I like KIV for, you know, taking the right pill at this point, but it's just, it's late in the game. You know, it's like you've let a lot of your people get sick and die under your watch as governor. And, you know, I, I think, Devin, you know, when we look back on this, you know, a lot of historians are going to just wonder what political leaders um, were, were thinking at the time when they were making these decisions to be partisan rather than save lives. I, I just don't know how we as future, you know, uh, members of society are going to look back on this day. But um, let's take you to Fox News uh, uh, listeners. Uh, Tucker Carlson's um, at it again, um, just being a terrible person. Um, I, I try not to be biased when we bring you the news, but I just feel that Tucker Carlson is, is a terrible person, so I'll I'll just be up front before delivering that story. But Tucker Carlson on on his show on Wednesday night basically went on a rant about a Capitol police officer who was defending our U.S. Capitol during the January sixth insurrectionist uh, insurrection against all the terrorists and rioters that attacked the Capitol. Uh, on his show, he attacked the character of Harry Dunn, a black law enforcement veteran who is expected to testify during the select committee hearings that's going to happen later on uh, this month and into next month. Tucker Carlson quotes, but it turns out Dunn has very little in common with your average cop. Dunn is an angry left-wing political activist whose social media feeds are full of praise for Nancy Pelosi, basically. Uh, The Fox News host referred to a uh, tweet from Dunn's account in which Dunn was talking about racism. This was after Donald Trump was elected, but Dunn was tweeting, racism is so American that when you protest it, people think you're protesting America. Dunn has remained vocal about what he experienced as a police officer that deadly day on January 6th, saying that he was called racial slurs when attacked by Trump supporters. In an interview earlier this year with ABC News correspondent Pierre Thomas, he detailed how he found himself gasping for air from the bear mace and pepper spray, which was being uh, aimed at him by the insurrectionists. Again, Devin, you know, Tucker Carlson, terrible person, um, talking about a police officer who was defending our capital, who was being attacked by terrorists, who was, you know, trying to, you know, fend against attackers who were really there to to kill and harm. I mean, we saw people who, who died during this attack on our Capitol, and this is all because of Trump supporters, all because of people who thought that they had a right to say who's supposed to be legally, you know, a, a voter and, you know, allowed to vote somebody in the office. Um, it's just so crazy that we're still talking about, uh, this event in this lens when we should have villainized and demonized everyone that was a part of it and already had this con- uh, committee, a uh, bipartisan effort to figure out what was going on. But yet the Republicans, the, the ultra conservatives have just made this narrative that 
it, it's okay. We, we should we should be upholding these terrorists as as as, as heroes. We have <laughs> we've actually entered the upside down in a way because who would have thought Tucker Carlson would bring a a cop? He's a Capitol Police officer onto the show, or not bring him onto the show, but uh, he was on the show. Um, and, and Tucker Carlson is attacking him for things he's saying online. We said these very same things about some of the officers who have been caught on video doing terrible things to black people. We've gone on and said, look at what they're saying. Look at what they say about us online. But that's you can't say that because it's back to blue. Can't say anything bad about police officers. But it's okay for Tucker Carlson to call this man an angry left wing political activist because he happened to be a police officer protecting the Capitol from angry right wing mobbers, basically. And now all of a sudden the, the tables have reversed and he wants to attack this man who's an, I, I just, I don't, I don't understand it. You know, it, it's, it's weird. You know, COVID is flipped as far as the, the, the narrative coming from the right. And now it's okay to apparently attack police officers for what they say on social media. <laughs> all of a sudden that's all right. It's strange world we live in right now. You know, um, eventually, but, Devin, they'll be calling for defund the police. Apparently so. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's next. Um, it's strange. It's strange. But um, we'll we'll move on to our next story here. We'll keep you updated as far as uh, Tucker Carlson and that Capitol Police officer. But we wanted to move on to a, a pretty cool story uh, coming out of California. So. We know, you know, with the COVID relief package, we kind of went through an experiment, really, Adrian, with giving people stimulus checks, not once, not twice, but three times for differing amounts, and then also expanding our unemployment rate, uh, unemployment benefits. And so some cities are actually trying to take that and make that permanent in a way. And so what you're seeing right now is a number of cities across the country are starting to implement policies that will give residents or citizens a guaranteed uh, kind of like minimum income, basically. And so California is giving some low-income residents a guaranteed income of about $500 to $1,000 each month to do with it as they please. And they're tracking what these folks are, what's happening with it. And so it's a coalition known as Mayors for a Guaranteed Income Plan, Income, and they plan to use the data collected alongside the University of uh, Pennsylvania Research Center and they're going to lobby the White House and Congress for a federal guaranteed income or for starters, they want to make the new $300 per month child tax credit permanent. It's going to expire next year, but they want to make it permanent. Uh, President Biden has kind of been on record pushing to extend the uh, expanded child tax credit uh, through 2025. And so he's also hoping to make it permanent. Like with everything, Republicans are arguing that if they made this permanent, it would create a disincentive for people to work and lead to more poverty. Although there is some evidence that when you give people basic income payments every month, that is not necessarily true. We saw this um, in June of 2020. Former Stockton Mayor Michael Tubbs actually started a program giving residents a guaranteed uh, income. And the study found that full-time employment for the participants actually grew in the first year of the program more quickly than it did for those who weren't receiving any cash. And so, I don't know, Adrian, it's interesting. We're kind of, you know, we're kind of going through an experiment, like I say. You know, a lot of people attach themselves to the guaranteed basic income because of Andrew Yang pushing it during the the, uh, presidential debates. But now we're actually seeing real-world experiments, real-world policies, testing it out to see if it works, you know, to see if it's true that... If you give people a guaranteed basic income, that they won't work. We're seeing that that's not actually true, but we're kind of going through it. We got the child tax payments going out. So we, you know, we could be on the verge of something, you know, major happening where we could live in a world where you get, you know, $500, $1,000 a month just as a basic level of income. De- Devin, you know, it's, it's, it's good that we're, we're testing the waters with this and I, and I am hopeful that will see something out of this. Um, I know that we're, we're in a point to where um, you've got some people who think that you should just be able to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and take care of your own family, your own bills and not 
getting handouts from the government. And then some people think that we're in a developed country with, you know, a number, you know, almost unlimited number of resources when you look at how much money people like Jeff Bezos have. So why can't people, um, you know, have some sort of, you know, basic income to get them by? So hopeful that this will continue to happen. Um, I don't have kids, Devin, so I'm not getting that extra, uh, that, that child tax credit. So I hope they can uh, start to experiment this in other ways for people without kids. <laughs> uh, so we'll, 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 hope, we'll keep our fingers crossed for that. Um, this is an interesting thing, listeners. We're going to take you uh, into Capitol Hill here where um, a, a block of House conservatives are trying to oust Nancy Pelosi. It's not going to happen since the Democrats control the House, but um, it's interesting to see that the Republicans are – uh, instead of them trying to work with the Democrats to, uh, you know, have effective public policy for people, they're just trying to oust Speaker Nancy Pelosi. So uh, House conservatives on, on yesterday pressed Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy to force a four vote by next week to oust the Speaker. Um, basically, uh, Nancy's been blocking two Republicans for serving uh, on the special committee uh, for the January 6th insurrection. Such a vote is what is known as a motion to vacate the chair. Obviously, it would quickly be rejected by the Democrats because they control the majority, and some moderate Republicans also wouldn't go for it. In the letter, the Freedom Caucus also cited other reasons why Pelosi should be removed. Uh, they basically said she has allowed remote proxy voting by lawmakers due to the coronavirus pandemic. And she had a metal detector installed at the entrances of the house after the January 6th attack. <laughs> very uh, funny reasons to try to oust somebody for. <laughs> uh, that seems very appropriate to, to allow a lot of remote, you know, working after the pandemic. And obviously after there's people bringing guns into the Capitol, we might need some metal detectors. <laughs> Uh, their their main gripe was her decision this week to essentially veto two of McCarthy's five GOP picks for the January 6th Select Committee. Uh, basically, Rep. Jim Banks and Rep. Jim Jordan. Uh, obviously, Devin, they don't need Jim Jordan on there. He's I don't know much Thanks, about Jim no. Banks, but I know enough about Jim Jordan to know that he's not a man of integrity where he needs to be on a committee like this. Both are diehard Trump lawyers, and Jordan was a founding chair member of the Freedom Caucus. In response, a furious McCarthy said Republicans would boycott participating in the committee, which kicks off his first hearing uh, later on Tuesday. So, Devin, that's an interesting story there. I mean, it's, you know, the Republicans are, are and I'm a, I'll be, you know, listeners, I usually am not as blunt, but I'll be very blunt. Republicans were are idiots in the way they handled this situation. They basically refused to do a, a bipartisan committee on the January 6th commission. They blocked that. And Nancy Pelosi had to go forward with this special select committee. And now they're trying to bitch and complain about what's going on. And excuse my French if you don't like it, but that's where we are, where you've got a party who complains, but they don't want to do anything as far as putting forth effective policy within our communities. They're not passing any bills or not want to do anything that President Joe Biden is trying to do or Nancy Pelosi is trying to do. They're basically just trying to obstruct Congress, obstruct the rule of law. And, and, and I don't know why they're even in office. And now they're complaining about something that they could have actually had an influence on if they just would have been bipartisan in the first place. So, again, Devin, excuse my language, but the Republicans <laughs> are idiots at this point. No, I think that's some frustration that a lot of people feel watching the other you know, the Republican Party operate in this environment where they're still pushing conspiracies and, and trying to oust Pelosi and attaching themselves to racist, you know, uh, narratives and things like that. It's just it's sad to watch a party just implode on itself. But that very party might be in control next year. So hopefully that doesn't happen. But um, don't count out America <laughs> to try to go backwards. But um, before we go to break, we're going to do leave you with the feel good story. I know the news can be kind of down and, and you know, kind of hard, but we want to leave you with the feel good story here. So history has actually been made at Harvard international debate competition where two black girls became the 
the first ever black girl duo to win this competition. And so their names are Jayla Jackson and Imani Stanton. And they came out victorious against more than 100 other debaters with an undefeated record. And this is the fourth consecutive year the Harvard Debate Council Diversity Project took home a championship win. So just to let you know, the subject of the debate was, quote, resolved the North the North Atlantic Treaty Group ought to considerably improve its protection commitments within the Baltic states. I have no idea what they're talking about. But um, Jackson, uh, a 16-year-old rising junior, and Imani Stanton, she's a 17-year-old rising senior. Both of them learned from Brandon B. Fleming. Fleming is the founder of the Harvard Debate Council Diversity Project, and he is an assistant debate coach. And he tweeted saying, hashtag Black Girl Magic, we did it again. So some feel good news for you there as we go into a break. And we're going to take that break now. And when we come back, we'll get our quick hits and we'll get you out of here. So stick with us. We'll be right back. Would you like to contribute to a scholarship fund? Would you like to help us partner with nonprofits? Would you like to submit a topic request or maybe even appear on our show? If so, go to patron.podbean.com forward slash black agenda pod. Thank you for your donation and belief in our mission. Let's get back to the show. All right, welcome back. So we are going to get into our quick hits, which are some quicker stories here. Some of them are funnier, but just other stories we didn't have time to get to during the main segments. So first off, if you are an average college football watcher, um, there's some big news happening. Some big things are shaking uh, when it comes to conference realignment. So it's all but official. But now Texas and Oklahoma have pretty much let it be known that they are ready to join the Southeastern Conference. Yes, Texas and Oklahoma are planning to leave the Big 12 Conference and join the SEC. And they're going to let the Big 12 know that on Monday. Um, this is reported from Bruce Feldman and Sam Kahn of The Athletic, but also Horns 24-7 also reported that Texas and Oklahoma are prepared to wait until the current grant of rights agreement expires in 2025, essentially meaning that if Texas and, and Oklahoma want to leave before then, they're going to have to pay the Big 12 a lot of money. And we're talking $80 million apiece just to leave the conference early. And so this has kind of been percolating since about a year ago. Texas and Oklahoma began talking about this. And then about six months ago, they actually approached the SEC about joining the conference. And this is moving very, very fast. Um, What you're seeing now is that the Big 12 is starting to have discussions. The remaining schools, there would be eight of them left, are starting to discuss maybe absorbing other schools like UCF, Houston, Cincinnati or BYU. Um, there's also some possibility, you know, if uh, if they can't add schools, they may try to join the Pac-12 and create a 20-team conference um, with the Pac-12. But again, this is all moving very, very fast. Uh, it has pretty much upset the entire college football landscape. So very well in the next few years, you could be looking at no Big 12 conference and Texas and Oklahoma being part of the SEC. So Big things are happening in the world of college football, not just college football, but basketball and all the other sports. Big ramifications for that. You know, Devin, I don't I don't follow sports as as much, but I do know one thing when it comes to college sports. Um everything's about the SEC, you know. Um you know, this <laughs> the SEC is where it's at. The SEC makes a lot of money. The SEC puts forth a lot of, you know. NFL players and, you know, and probably NBA players and, and, and different things like that. So um, I can understand why uh, Texas and, and OU are really trying to go ahead and get in there. Uh, makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, another little story here. This might um, be more heartfelt, touch your, you know, be a little touchy Philly story here. Um, I'm a dog lover and I've, I've always owned um, Great Danes, but Devin could probably, you know, relate more to this one because, you know, Dorothy's a lot more comparable <laughs> to a Yorkie here. But uh, listeners, it, it, uh, this is out of Toronto, Canada. There's a, there was a family's tiny Yorkie 
that was uh, being held as a hero after rescuing her 10-year-old owner from being attacked by a coyote. Lily, who's 10-year-old, uh, was walking Macy, who's the six-year-old Yorkie, in a neighborhood when a coyote attacked them and chased them. So Lily said that she ran away and dropped the Yorkie's leash, but Macy refused to follow and basically, I guess, you know, tried to defend and get the coyote to go away. And if you know anything about dogs, Yorkies are very small compared to anything less known a coyote. Uh, Macy survived the confrontation, has been treated by the veterinary, uh, multiple puncture wounds, unfortunately, from the coyote's teeth. Lily's family said that Macy was transferred to the ICU, actually, when one of the units became infected and she started to develop a fever. She's expected to make full recovery, though, so that's the good news there, Devin. The family is also crowdfunding to pay for uh, Macy's veterinarian care. So um, if you've got some time, go check that out, listeners. Give to that cause because um, this is a really, really good story here, Devin. Yes, it was. I would hope my little Dorothy would be just as uh, brave <laughs> as this Yorkie here <laughs> in protecting. Um, but no, that's a really, really great story there um, from Toronto. So we're going to go from Toronto down to the mean streets of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is where the NBA champion Milwaukee Bucks reside. And they are, if you didn't know, they are NBA champions led by Giannis Antetokounmpo. Ante Tokumpo. That was terrible. I apologize. <laughs> but the Milwaukee Bucks are champions of the NBA. Um, after 50 years, 50 years after their first time, they did defeat the Phoenix Suns in game six of the NBA finals. And just to let you know how big of an impact this is really having, not just in Milwaukee, but just all over uh, you know, the, the world, right now, Milwaukee could actually sell about a billion dollars in jerseys just because of the attention they're getting from winning the NBA championship. Demand for Bucks jerseys has increased 2,530% in the hours after their win over the Phoenix Suns on Tuesday. Uh, fans within the city of Milwaukee could buy an estimated $73 million in Bucks jerseys, and the entire state of Wisconsin could buy 10 times that. So that's how you get very close to a billion dollars. And we're talking... Fans lining up at, t- at the team's pro shop for T-shirts, hats, anything to commemorate this moment. Um, and just to let you know how popular Giannis has gotten, he is currently the second most popular jersey. Uh, he has the second most popular jersey in the NBA when it comes to sales. He's only behind LeBron James of the Los Angeles Lakers. So massive, massive, uh, you know, influx of money of people buying jerseys. So. I'm happy to see it, though. I was happy to see Giannis win. But I know you don't follow sports, Adrian, but this that was a huge thing that happened. Happy to see the folks in Milwaukee, you know, get to celebrate a championship. Uh, it's always very cool to see a team that hasn't won in a while get to finally win it. It just seems a little – it looks like it means more to them. <laughs> yeah, Devin, I can agree with that because I'm one that, even though I don't follow sports, I often like to root for underdogs and – uh, Milwaukee could definitely be considered one of those things. So it's awesome to see that and um, see what, what's going on there. Uh, this is another awesome story, Devin. Um, I, I go awesome in the end, not so much what the man went through, but uh, there was a man, uh, listeners, that was rescued. Uh, he was he wrote, a, he wrote an SOS message on the shack and was rescued uh, out of Alaska. Um, while flying between Alaskan cities, Coatesview and Nome, Coast Guard helicopter crew spotted an SOS sign on top of a shack. They circled back to a remote mining camp and they found a man waving his arms. Uh, so friends of this man had reported him missing after he didn't return to his home. It turned out that the man had been mauled by a bear days earlier. The crew realized this when they finally got to him. The attack bruised his torso and injured his leg. It's unclear what type of bear attacked the man, but both Black and brown bears are common in the state. Alaska has an estimated 30,000 brown bears and 100,000 black bears, according to the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. Interestingly, the bear had been harassing him, Devin, for several days. So he had been out there for a while. Uh, the bear had mauled him and you know left him you know very, very injured. And it had kept coming back you know, a little bit you know, here and there. 
uh, but fortunately the man was able to escape. Um, listeners, if you're ever in Alaska or anywhere where there's, uh, you know, where they're notorious for having a lot of bears, the Alaska Wildlife Agency actually has a lot of recommendations posted on their website to educate you and guide you um, should you have an encounter with the bear. Um, I know one thing, Devin, uh, based off of this and based off of what I know from watching The Revenant, if there's anywhere where there's like uh, a, a over prevalence of bears, I'm just not going to be there. Yeah, you won't find us. No, you won't find us there. Sorry. <laughs> won't be exploring those lands. Uh, he's lucky to get out alive. So thank God he still was, you know, they flew over and they were able to, to rescue him. Um, but man, so we go from, you know, bear attacks to somebody actually using bear mace in the mall. Um, it's all craziest stories come out of Florida, but a Florida man, Florida man strikes again. Uh, a Florida man actually stole candles from a mall store and on his way out, he decided to spray dozens of other customers and patrons with bear mace repellent before escaping. And so the theft happened uh, Saturday afternoon at a Bath and Body Works store in a mall in the Doral suburb west of Miami. Uh, the un- unidentified suspect entered the store, filled his bags with candles, and then started spraying people with, with bear mates. It's not funny, but it's funny reading it. And so uh, the spokesman for Doral Police said, quote, this is an only in Miami story. He said, you can't make this up, which you cannot. And so about 35 people were uh, affected by the mace. Uh, some of them were actually taken to the hospital uh, for treatment, including the store manager. But officials were not sure how many other um, or were there, was there anybody else admitted. And so if you don't know, bear mace is a very strong irritant to a person's eyes and respiratory system. Um, and so this, you know, the, the assailant continues to be on the loose, Adrian. Uh, he did get away with his candles I know Bath and Body Works candles are really good. We have some here at the house. They do smell great. I don't know if they're worth stealing uh, and spraying people with bear mace for, but he did get away, and he got away in a cab, of all things. And so hopefully they're able to track him down <laughs> and we get a mug shot. But um, he, he's, he's out there on the loose. You know, Devin, that, that's funny. Um I, I, I just, I, I never really shopped at uh, Bath and Body Works that much, but when I moved in uh, with Justin, um, he's got some lotion from Bath and Body Works. It's like a teakwood lotion, and it's, it's, it's like my favorite scent. Uh, it's like so good. So I, I don't think I would steal uh, from Bath and Body Works, but I can somewhat see where this guy's uh, motivation comes from because they really have great products here. Um, Justin even stocked up and got like, 32 candles. He actually bought them. He didn't steal them. So um, I'm smelling all of their candles right now. So they're really, really good listeners, but um, just buy them. Um, honestly, Bath and Body Works has sales throughout the entire year. So you don't have to steal them. Um, my uh, last little uh, quick hit, and I guess our last quick hit here, um, if you're an art lover, history buff or you know someone who loves that kind of stuff this will you know really get you going but there's a possible michelangelo fingerprint that was found on the statue here listeners basically what may be michelangelo's thumbprint has been found on a small wax statue that he created 500 years ago museum experts at london's victoria and albert museum found the mark pressed onto a dark red figurine which was a sketch for a larger unfinished marble sculpture titled a slave the figurine depicting a naked figure with an arm across its face was part of the renaissance master's preparations for pope julius its elaborate tomb in rome excuse me pope julius ii's elaborate tomb in rome it is an exciting prospect that one of michelangelo's prints could have survived the wax one of the vna's senior curator says such marks would suggest the physical presence of the creative presence uh creative process of the artist michelangelo destroyed many of his preparatory works 
The proposed statue was just one of over 40 life-size figures planned for the Pope's tomb, though plans were later greatly reduced. The sketch model is believed to have been created between 1515 and 1519. So that is a long, long, long time ago. Uh, listeners were about, I guess, about 600 years ago. Uh, but that's pretty interesting, Devin. Uh, you know, maybe that I'm sure there's a process for authenticating his fingerprint. I don't, I don't even know, actually, because I don't know um, where, you know, where we have like the real fingerprint of Michelangelo <laughs> to compare it to or whatever. I don't know if that's a thing. So uh, I'm not a big, you know, I'm not, you know, into that. Well, I would say I'm not into it, but I don't have a, a good knowledge of it. So um, interesting news here, I guess, to say the least. Yeah. I mean, definitely, you know, interesting. Um, hopefully they can, uh, you know, verify, do something with it, but um, but yeah, so that'll um, that'll round out our second segment. That's going to do it for the news portion of the show and our quick hits. And so we're going to take another quick break and then we're going to wrap the show up and let you know what's coming up. So stick around. We'll be right back. You have been listening to the Black Agenda podcast hosted by Adrian Guest and Devin Dito. If you enjoy listening to the show, let the host know by leaving a review on Apple Podcast or by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash Black Agenda Pod and give a few dollars. After all, the Black Agenda Podcast is supported by listeners like you. Let's get back to the show. All right, welcome back. So as always, we like to end the show with giving you a look forward as to what is upcoming on the podcast. Um, so up next for the show is going to be our, our regularly scheduled interview uh, coming out on Tuesday, July 27th. We'll have Miss Jennifer R. Farmer. She is a PR expert and activist who has worked for big names like Killer Mike and Reverend William Barber III. And so she is also the author of the forthcoming book. It's titled First and Only How Black Women Navigate Work and Life. And so it's going to be a really great conversation, not only about her book, but also about the work she's doing in the PR field. And so, again, Jennifer R. Farmer, uh, PR expert, also author. She's coming up on Tuesday, July 27th. So make sure you look out for that. And then, of course, we'll be back with you next Saturday, July 30th, for weekly roundup number seven, bringing you all the news from the past week. So make sure you tune in for that as well. Um, and lastly, we love that you support us and we love that you donate and listen to the podcast, but there are some other ways that you can help us out. Um, and Adrian's going to let you know how you can do that. Absolutely, Devin. Um, listeners, I, I always try to, uh, you know, take pride in, in telling you why you should donate, because when I think about the why, that, that speaks a lot. Um, because Devin and I, we're doing some great things with speaking to great leaders and experts over public policy and issues within our society. But we're really trying to do something beyond that. We're trying to bring forth an organization that will really work to transform communities, whether that be through financial literacy advocacy, whether that be through lobbying for different policies that are going to put money in people's pockets, you know, better neighborhoods or whatever the case may be. And in order for us to do that, we need your help monetarily. We need your help with liking, following, sharing. Everything that it does involves with that would be awesome to have your help. All you got to do is go to our website, blackagendapod.com, click on that donate tab. When you give a dollar to us, it really shows that you not only care about what we're doing, but you're willing to support what we're doing and support our growth because we're really working to grow this into something bigger. Another thing that you can really help us support is our charity of the month. Um, we would love to be able to have our patrons have some sort of contribution that go towards our charity of the month each month where we highlight somebody. And this month we've selected the organization Color of Change. Color of Change is the nation's largest online racial justice organization. They help people respond effectively to injustice in the world around us. As the nation's largest online force driven by 7 million members, they move decision makers and corporations and government to create a more human and less hostile world for black people in America. So as you give to us listeners, we can give to different organizations. We can do a lot to really better our society. So again, go to blackagendapod.com, click that donate tab and start off by giving a dollar a month. 
Absolutely. We would appreciate any help you give us. And so before we let you go, we also like to let you uh, let you know that you can follow, uh, like, and share us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find us at Black Agenda Pod is our handle. Uh, again, that's at Black Agenda Pod. Uh, we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Look us up, follow, but also share the content that we're putting out. We're trying to grow it. So we want to make sure we can get as many eyeballs on our content as possible. Um, you can also watch us on, on YouTube. Just type in the Black Agenda podcast, and we have a lot of great uh, material, a lot of great interviews with folks on our YouTube channel. We have 10 interviews, 10 interviews with HBCU uh, presidents and administrators. You're not going to find that content anywhere else but here at the Black Agenda podcast. So make sure you check that out. Um, and so, we, again, for me and Adrian, we thank you for listening to us, um, and we'll catch you next time.